Hello and welcome to episode 6 of Women in the Word at Uni, a podcast where we open up the Bible and we see what God tells us in it. I'm Rachel and I'm really looking forward to studying some more of the book of Mark with you today. Have you ever met someone in a position of power? How about this? Have you ever experienced the difference it can make to have the help of someone in a position of power or influence? We've got lots of phrases in our English language that affirm the helpfulness of influential people. We talk about name dropping where you just happen to casually mention that famous person whose mum is best friends with your neighbour's aunt. Even more valuable is the concept of pulling a few strings where a person can use the influence afforded them by their job or their position to make things happen. Then of course there's a saying, it's all about who you know, meaning that knowing the right people can help you get what you want. People in positions of power have a lot of influence. You might remember that back in early 2011, Brisbane flooded. Now at the time, I was living in a share house with some friends in West End. All that separated my house from the Brisbane River was one other house, a road and a park. As you can probably imagine, when the river flooded, it wasn't too long before there was actually nothing at all separating our house from the rising waters and we had to evacuate. After the river peaked and we were allowed to return, my mum and I paid a visit to the house to survey the damage. But we found that we weren't there alone. It just so happened that the then Minister for Foreign Affairs, the Honourable Kevin Rudd, was my local member. And he too was walking the streets of West End to see the effects of the flood for himself. He chatted to us a little and he was actually quite concerned that we observed proper safety precautions during the cleanup. Make sure you wear gloves, he said. Apparently, they're sold out. If you have trouble getting any, call my office and they'll make sure you can get some. Rubber gloves were in such high demand for the flood cleanup that they'd become a precious commodity. So Kevin Rudd was going to use his influence to make sure that his constituents were well supplied and therefore kept safe. He, who he was and his influence made a difference. Over the past few weeks of this podcast, we've looked at who Jesus is. We've seen him walk on water. We've seen him heal the sick and the demon-possessed. We've seen him feed crowds of more than 4,000 and 5,000 people with just a few basic provisions. And we've seen that he was able to do all of this because he is the Son of God. Another word we can use to describe him is divine, meaning he is God. So our question for today is, if Jesus is truly divine, What difference does that make? We've seen that it means he can do some pretty amazing things for people in the Bible, and we're going to see more of that today. But what difference does it make for us? Is it enough to simply believe he is a very good man who did amazing things? What difference does it make for us for him to be divine? Well, it does make a difference because, as we will see as we work our way through the Bible today, Jesus' divinity is radically life-changing, both for those he encounters in our passage, but for us as well. Jesus' divinity is radically life-changing because, firstly, he has the power of God. Secondly, because he gives us a job to do. And thirdly, because he gives us a way to live. Well, let's take a look at the Bible now together. We're going to be looking at the whole of Mark, chapter 9, verses 14 to 50. But for now, we're just going to start by reading verses 14 to 41. 
I'm reading from the New International Version. Now, I really encourage you to have your Bible open in front of you or your Bible app or a website like biblia.com, that's B-I-B-L-I-A.com, so that you can read along and see for yourself the words of God in Scripture. Let's read Mark 9 verses 14 to 41. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind can come out only by prayer. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teachers said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop, because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If we look back in our Bibles to what comes immediately before the passage we've just read, we find that Jesus has just been on top of a mountain with three of his disciples, Peter, James and John. There on that mountaintop, Jesus was transfigured. Mark 9 verse 3 tells us his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Then in verse 7, things get even more amazing. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. God himself has pronounced Jesus' identity. He is the son of God. He is divine. 
But even mountaintop experiences have to come to an end, and so does this. And what a contrast. Jesus, along with Peter, James and John, come down from the mountain only to find the other disciples arguing with the teachers of the law, or in other words, some of the Jewish religious leaders. Now, why are they arguing? Well, verse 17 tells us, A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Now, we're not told the specifics of the argument between the disciples and the teachers of the law, but it must have had something to do with this boy and the disciples' inability to drive out the demon. If you've ever had to step in and settle a disagreement, the first thing you might instinctively want to do is to find out who's at fault. If my children are fighting over a toy, for example, it's easy to jump in and point the finger at whoever seems to be snatching or pulling the toy off the other child. Well, in this case, it seems that everyone is at fault in this argument, even the father of the boy. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. It's a broad statement that encompasses the father, the teachers of the law, and the nine disciples who stayed behind while Jesus was on the mountain. The big problem in this argument is not who is right and who is wrong. The big problem is that they're all wrong. None of them is believing who Jesus is and what he can do. Jesus orders the boy be brought to him. And we learn in verse 20, when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. This demon has immense power over the boy. It's made him like this since childhood. It's even tried to kill him by throwing him into fire or water on a number of occasions. This demon has immense power over this poor child and his dad is desperate for help, understandably. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us, he says in verse 22. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Belief or lack thereof has been the main problem in this discussion so far. The man does believe, but he recognizes that there is a gap in his belief. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Jesus commands the impure spirit to leave the boy, and it does so, but not before a last display of its horrible demonic power, shrieking in verse 26, convulsing the boy and leaving him for dead. But he's not dead. No, Jesus takes him by the hand in verse 27 and helps him to stand up. Jesus has overcome the evil spirit. So why couldn't the disciples do it? Back in Mark chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus has sent these men out. He sent out his disciples, his closest followers, and he's given them authority to cast out evil spirits. So why couldn't they send this one away? Well, in verse 29, Jesus tells us, this kind can come out only by prayer. It seems that there are two elements which are necessary for this exorcism. Two elements which are necessary, but up until now have been absent. Firstly, there's prayer. Secondly, there's belief. Jesus told us back in verse 23, everything is possible for one who believes. It seems that what Jesus is saying is that prayer and belief are essential elements for this healing to occur. Now, on face value, perhaps Jesus is speaking about the power of prayer and the power of faith. It sounds like he might be saying that a prayer of faith, a request that is prayed with confident belief in God, will be granted. Well, it actually goes a bit deeper than that. You see, when we pray, when we ask God to do things, the temptation for us is to focus on the thing we're praying for 
and to also focus on the strength of our prayers. You see, the temptation is to put the focus on us. So the temptation for us in this passage, when we read a line like, everything is possible for one who believes, or this kind can come out only by prayer, is to focus on ourselves and whether or not we're praying hard enough or believing enough. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is talking about us, but even more than that, he is talking about the one who hears our prayers, the one who has the power and authority to answer them. When Jesus says everything is possible for one who believes, it's not just a statement about us and our belief, but it's a statement about God. It's a statement that says that all things are possible, not simply because of our belief, but more so because of the power of the one in whom we believe. He's not guaranteeing that if we believe, God will answer every prayer in the way we ask. Rather, what he is guaranteeing is that the one we pray to is all-powerful. God might choose to answer our prayers differently than the way we ask, but God is all-powerful. So the focus needs to be not so much on us, but on him And likewise our prayers, this demon could only be cast out by prayer that is believing in the one prayed to, in the all-powerful God. And you see this whole scenario, it's about power. When we have arguments, often it's all about power. It's about who's going to win. So ironically, this scene opened with an argument. But the battle here is not so much between the disciples and the teachers of the law. The real battle is between God and his enemy, the devil. In this scene, we have a vivid portrayal of the power of the devil, power that controls a young boy, a murderous, convulsive power that leaves him for dead. This is a powerful demon. Yet as powerful as this demon is, when it comes face to face with the power of God, it is left for dead. Its power doesn't stand up. In this battle of a strong demon versus our strong God, it is God who proves most powerful. It is God who wins in the end. It is the power of God displayed by his divine son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this episode, Jesus' divinity has a radical effect on the demon. And his divinity has a radical life-changing effect on the young boy and in turn his entire family. His life is no longer controlled by a demon. His life is no longer at risk because of that demon. His life is radically changed by the divine Jesus. Jesus' divinity is radically life-changing because he has the power of God. Well, now it's time for Jesus and his disciples to move on. They pass through Galilee and Jesus takes this time to teach them. Verse 31, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. Now, Jesus speaks in the third person here, but he is referring to himself. The term son of man comes from the Old Testament prophecies of Daniel, and they speak of one who God has promised to send to rescue his people. He calls this rescuer the son of man. When Jesus uses this term, he is identifying himself as that rescuer. The Israelites expected this rescuer to come in a blaze of glory, triumphant over his enemies. Yet Jesus says that in actual fact, that rescuer being himself will be killed, but he will also rise again. Yet again, it's God's power versus the enemy. Yet again, God's power will overcome. Jesus' divinity brings radical change to even his own life. Jesus' divinity means that he will die to rescue his people. 
Yet Jesus' divinity means he will rise again. Jesus' divinity is radically life-changing because he has the power of God. Secondly, Jesus' divinity is radically life-changing because he gives us a job to do. If we read on to verse 33, we find that the disciples have been arguing. Jesus asks them why, but they don't answer. In verse 34, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Now, you know what that's like, I'm sure. We've all done it. You get sprung for doing something you shouldn't or saying something you shouldn't. So you sheepishly keep your mouth shut rather than admitting to what you know you shouldn't have said or done. We don't want to say something that will get us into even more trouble. Now, the disciples evidently know they shouldn't have been having this argument. But even though they don't tell him what they argued about, Jesus knows. Verse 35, anyone who wants to be the first must be the very last and the servant of all. And he goes on to illustrate the point by taking a little child into his arms. Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. This child represents someone who needs to be served. And yet, when Jesus says that welcoming one of these little children in my name is to welcome me, he's also referring to those who he sends out as his servants. So the child represents both those who need serving and those who serve in Jesus' name. And to welcome one of Jesus' servants is to welcome Jesus and to thereby welcome God who sent him. Jesus emphasizes this even more in verse 41. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Belonging to the Messiah, belonging to Jesus, the divine savior rescuer means going out to serve in his name. It's part and parcel of being his follower. And anyone who cares for his followers will certainly not lose their reward. Caring for Jesus' followers honors Jesus. Now, if you want to get ahead in a job, you probably need to put yourself forward. You need your boss to see how worthy you are of their esteem and, and promotion. To get ahead, you need to put yourself ahead. Not so as a follower of Jesus. Jesus calls his followers to a life of servitude. He sends his followers out for a life of servitude. That makes sense though, doesn't it? After all, our leader Jesus, he himself, he was sent to serve us. He gave up his life for our sake. Jesus, the divine one, lowered himself to the point of death. A life following him is a life of lowering, of serving. It is a life of being sent to serve. And one way we serve him is by welcoming others whom he has sent. Jesus' divinity is radically life-changing because he gives us a job to do. And that job is to live our lives serving him, putting him first and putting his other servants before ourselves. Being Jesus' follower means deliberately not putting ourselves first. So to serve Jesus might mean big changes. It might mean things like giving up the comfort of our first world existence so that you can go and tell other people about Jesus, perhaps in the middle of China or Myanmar. Or it might mean to look after AIDS orphans in South Africa. But to serve Jesus can also involve doing things today at home or on your way home. It might mean serving a stranger by giving up your seat on the bus. It might mean getting up early tomorrow morning to read the Bible before you go to uni, even though you'd really like a sleep in. It might mean taking the initiative to make dinner so that your mum doesn't have to when she gets home from work. 
Jesus' divinity is radically life-changing because he gives us a job to do. He sends us to serve just as he did. Jesus' divinity is radically life-changing because he has the power of God and because he gives us a job to do. Jesus' divinity is also radically life-changing because he gives us a way to live. Let's read verses 42 to 50. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Jesus' divinity is radically life-changing because he gives us a way to live. And we see that here in three ways. Firstly, in verse 42, living as a follower of the divine Jesus means making sure that we don't do anything to cause other followers of Jesus to sin. Secondly, in verses 43 to 48, living as a follower of the divine Jesus means dealing decisively and dramatically with sin in our own lives. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And Jesus goes on to make several similar statements. Now, what he's advising here is not self-mutilation. He's not advocating self-amputation. But what he does give us here is a vivid picture of the gravity of sin, of just how serious it is. Following the divine Jesus means seeking to live like him. This means living a life of serving him and others before ourselves. And it also means a life of seeking to emulate him, to live as he did. If we're trusting Jesus to save us from our sin, we should want to leave those sins behind, to live holy lives because God is holy and he's the one we serve, the one who's forgiven our sins and has saved us from them. The vivid picture Jesus gives us in these verses reminds us of just how serious sin is, how grave its consequences are. That means we take whatever radical action is needed to get rid of things that tempt us, things that cause us to sin or make it hard for us not to sin. Are there things in your life that make it hard for you to follow Jesus in a particular area? Do you struggle with internet pornography? Put an anti-porn filter on your web browser. You can download them for free from the internet and you can even set some of them up to send a friend an email if you do happen to look at something you shouldn't. Now it's going to be tough. It's going to be embarrassing, humiliating even. But this is the kind of radical action Jesus calls his followers to. Is there a show you like to watch but the characters are sleeping together, whether you see them do it or not? Now is this helpful for you as you seek to live a life of purity that reserves sex for marriage. Now you might be able to watch it and not feel like it affects you, but, but perhaps does it creep into your thinking that maybe, just maybe their sex outside of marriage is okay? Is there a movie that you watch that builds a romantic and sexual tension to the point that you find yourself wanting that couple to sleep together? Or that makes you long for that kind of relationship in a way that makes it really hard to feel content with being single? Is watching that movie helpful 
or unhelpful to you in following Jesus. Take radical action. Stop watching the show. Walk out of the movie theater. What's more important, watching that show or movie or living the way Jesus wants you to? Jesus' divinity is radically life-changing because he gives us a way to live and that means dealing decisively with sin. Not only does it mean dealing decisively with sin, it also means living distinctively as followers of Jesus. Verses 49 to 50, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Salt, that little white powdery stuff that you sprinkle on food, is powerful. It has a distinctive flavour. It changes the taste of the food it's added to. It enhances the flavour. And if you're used to eating salty food, anything without it is going to taste bland. Salt is distinctive and powerful. It stands out. So too, as followers of the divine Jesus, we're to be distinctively different from those around us who don't follow him. When we get rid of things that tempt us, when we stop swearing, when we don't go out and drink too much, when we go to church or Bible study instead of either sleeping in or doing more study, we're going to look different, distinctive from those around us. If unlike our friends, we don't use phrases like, oh my God, because we want to only use God's name in a way that honors him, reveres him, adores him, we're going to look different. Jesus' divinity is radically life-changing because he gives us a way to live and that means living distinctively different lives. Jesus is the divine king. He is the son of God. He has the power of God. Yet even so, he lived a life of service of giving up his life for our sakes so that our sins could be forgiven and so that we could be made right with God. So as we close, I have a few questions for you. Firstly, do you believe in Jesus' divinity? When you pray to him, are you thinking about how powerful he is as the son of God? Or are you thinking about how much faith you have? How will Jesus' divinity shape the way you pray? Secondly, how will his divinity affect the way you live today and what you do? What are you going to do today that reflects the fact that you follow Jesus? How are you going to seek to serve him today? And thirdly, is there anything you need to change in the way you live? Is there something you need to stop doing or watching or saying or anything you need to put in place to protect yourself from sin and temptation and to help you live distinctively, saltily as a follower of Jesus? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for Jesus, your divine son. Thank you that he shows us your power. Thank you that when we pray, we can do so knowing that you, the one to whom we pray, you're all powerful. Please help us to live lives of service to you and to live lives that are faithful to you, seeking to bring you glory. We ask that you would show us areas of sin and temptation in our lives and help us to get rid of them. Please help us to be salty, to live distinctively as your followers so that those around us will look at our lives and want to know more about you, you the God we serve as a result. Amen. If you'd like to find out more about the things you've heard today or if you have any questions please feel free to email me at r-a-k-o-t-t-e-r-e-r at gmail.com